Thanks, Amy. Hey, Uni Church. It's good to be here tonight. My name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. Hey, we're going to be opening up Amos chapter 2 and 3 in a second. But why don't we start by praying to God? Let's join me in prayer. Father God, we come here tonight seeking not just to learn more knowledge and stuff about you. We come here tonight to be transformed by your word. We pray that as we sit under it, as we hear what you have to say to your people nearly 3,000 years ago, that you would speak through your word to us tonight. We're thankful that you are the God who speaks. Help us to listen and be transformed by your word now. Amen. Throughout history, there have been plenty of really powerful people that have risen up through the ranks. I'm a bit of a history nerd. I love reading about history. One of my saddest things was I never got to study history kind of formally at uni or even in high school. I had to pick some other stuff. But I just love learning about history. Is anyone Dan Carlin's Hardcore History? They're like nine-hour-long podcast episodes, and I, just lo- I could just listen to those all day. One of my favorite accounts of someone who's risen up and found himself with a lot of power and this feeling of power that comes when you have this huge army is King Xerxes. He was one of the kings in the Arachmid Persian kind of empire. And basically, he was the one that wanted to go and conquer Greece, the faraway nation. He took this big, huge army of 300,000 people across, and he got to the, the gap where the land ended at the end of Asia, and you got to cross the water to get to Greece, the island. And he had too many troops to build a boat, and so he built this land bridge made out of like boats and pontoons and this giant bridge to get his army across. See, with an army like that, victory seems inevitable. Xerxes talked about himself as if he was God. He had this kind of crack force of troops, 10,000, that were his personal bodyguards, and they were called the Immortals. See, Xerxes felt invincible. But the Persian Empire is nowhere today. I think maybe a more modern example is the Soviet Union. At the height of the Soviet Union's power in the kind of mid-20th century, they had so much power, so much land, so much control, so many troops, and it seemed inconceivable to imagine the Soviet Union not existing. And yet they're not here today. There's something about power that makes you feel invincible. And it's not just rulers of nations. We kind of have this on a more personal scale as well. There's an a, uh, acronym for description of someone who feels a sense of power and invincibility. It's um, YMS, Young Man Syndrome. <laughs> Doctors have actually named it that. And, and it's this idea that you know, young guys in particular they feel this power and energy, and maybe it's because their frontal lobe hasn't fully finished developing yet. Uh, but they're more likely to take risks to do things that uh, other people wouldn't. I was watching a compilation just earlier today about death diving, which is basically, it's nearly all guys. I haven't seen a woman doing it yet because they're not dumb enough. Uh, basically, they find the highest cliff possible and just dive off it into the water and try and hold like belly flop poses. Uh, why would you do that? Anyway, it was, it's pretty fun to watch. look it up on YouTube, death diving. Uh, <laughs> Young male syndrome, the the, the feeling of invincibility that comes, uh, particularly across young guys. And in tonight's passage, Israel has a serious case of young male syndrome. To the book of Amos, it was written around 750 BC. So, uh, and Israel, at this time, were 
experiencing a great sense of security and peace and prosperity. They were kind of top dog in the ancient Near Eastern world. All the nations around them, uh, Israel, the ones surrounding them, so Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, they'd all been conquered by Israel. They were experiencing this great economic and military um, rise. And they're feeling pretty good about themselves. See, remember back to Israel's history, around 1000 BC, that's King David. And then a few generations down, his son and then his son, 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 and they split the kingdom into two. And so Israel here is not the whole 12 tribes of God's people. It's just the 10 northern ones. That's Israel. And then the two southern ones, Judah and Benjamin, they form Judah. And so Amos is speaking to these 10 northern tribes around 750 BC. And the king, Jeroboam II, has had a long and illustrious rule. There hasn't been any assassination attempts on his life, and the ports and the trading are going really well. And there's this huge growth. There's all these wealthy people rising up, this upper middle class that's kind of come into fruition, and they're feeling pretty invincible. And the prophet Amos comes on the scene, and we saw last week he had a word of judgment around the nations that were surrounding Israel. It said he roars like a lion in 1 verse 2 and all these other nations that have been committing war crimes and sin against each other and awful, horrible stuff, God says, I'm going to judge them. Now, what do you think Israel would have said to that? Great. Yeah, they have done awful things. You should judge them. That's fair and reasonable. Hold them to account. We love it when someone calls out our enemies. We're pretty happy for that, aren't we, as humans? They thought God was on their side and that they were invincible. But the problem for them was that Amos was just getting started. He'd set the target around the center, and as we saw last week, it's going to go up on the screen, that he was zeroing in to center on Israel themselves. But before he gets to Israel, he's going to start with Judah. And so this is the first point, it's Judah's downfall. Pick it up with me, have a Bible, we're going to flip through a bunch of places. Pick it up with me in chapter 2, verse 4. Amos takes aim at Judah. Says the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they've rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Therefore, I will send fire against Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. See, Judah had a patchy relationship as well with Israel. Remember, they'd broken off into two separate kingdoms, and Judah was kind of like the, the self righteous ones. See, Judah said to Israel, hey, we're the ones that are truly from the line of David. Your king's a phony. He just came in and took control. We're the ones who are from the line of God's kings. And as well, they said, hey, we're the ones with the holy city, Jerusalem. What do you guys have? You don't have anything up there in the north. They said, hey, we're the ones with the temple of God. What have you got up there in the north in Israel? Nothing. You've got to build your own sites. We've got God's special temple that we built back when we were one whole nation. And so Amos turns aim to Judah, and you can imagine that Israel isn't hating it. Again, they're like, ah, you think you're so much better than us, Judah? You know, you've just been showed up for who you really are, a bunch of hypocrites. Look what God says to you. you. You think you're better than us, but you don't even listen to God. See, what does it say? They reject the instruction of the Lord, and they haven't kept his statutes. See, Judah hasn't committed crimes against other humans, They've ignored God. And, and so God's going to judge them. I don't, I don't think it's a literal fire. I think he's talking here figurative. He's going to sweep through and destroy the citadels of Jerusalem. And that does happen. 
in, in the Babylonian Empire that comes through, and maybe another hundred or so years after Persia, come and conquer the, the southern two tribes of Judah and take them into exile. But that's not the focus for Amos. He has this passing word for Judah, and then he moves on to Israel. See, the book's not really about the nations around Israel. It's not really about Judah. Each of them get like one short paragraph. The book is about the downfall of Israel. That's our next point if you're taking notes. Israel's downfall. See, Amos now turns and spends the next eight chapters after addressing the nations, addressing Judah, he spends the rest of the book addressing Israel. And he doesn't have positive things to say to them. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral, and in the house of their God they drink wine obtained through fines. See, Israel, it turns out, are not that different from the nations around them. But in fact, as we're going to see, they're actually worse than the nations around them because they should have known better. They should have known and listened and heard from the God who they love and they profess to love. See, it's awful what they're doing. In verse 6 and 7, they're, they're treating people like a commodity. Can you imagine see, the flippancy that you would have to have of, like, oh, yeah, I'll trade you a slave for a pair of shoes, a new pair of Nikes. Like, they just have no value for human life. And, and in verse 8, you see that the man and his father have sex with the same girl. I'm not sure if this is talking about like fertility cult worship that was prominent in um, the area with the gods that were there before Israel moved in, or just two people taking advantage of a vulnerable person. But either way, it's so against what God is for. See, they do all the things that they're doing, not just these crimes that they're committing uh, out in public, but they're doing it in the sight of God, thinking that he won't care or won't do anything. So look at verse 8. They take the shirt off a poor person's back. And, and this person that needs money for a loan, they say, sure, give us your shirt as collateral. And then they take that shirt and they go and have a nap with it in the temple. And this poor person has nothing. They unfairly tax the poor and then use the money to go and get drunk in God's temple of all places. See, God's people here, they're religious, yes. But they're immoral, they're heartless, they're ruthless, they're greedy, they're hedonistic, they're materialistic, and they completely have ignored the will of God. They have no desire to listen to him, and their riches and their wealth and their success has made them feel invincible. They don't care about God anymore, they've got what they need. In some ways, Israel is a little bit like us in Auckland today. See, we live in this time of unparalleled progress. We think we're this modern nation where everyone's cared for and everyone has the right stuff. And in lots of ways, things have never been better for the average person than they are today, according to the statistics. But all around us, our culture has thrown off the desire to listen to God, have anything to do with the God of the universe. 
And we think that we're invincible because of our wealth, because of our prosperity, because of the houses and the stuff that we have and the career that we have and the skills that we have. And we've forgotten, just like Israel, that behind the rise and fall of every nation lies the God who's in control. See, that's Amos' message here to Israel. And you see it played out in verses 9 to 12. See, what does he say? I'm the one who destroyed the Amorites, the people who lived in the land before you. They were sinful. They rejected me. They rebelled. They were deserving of judgment. And I judged them and I brought you into the land. They were strong like a cedar, but I brought them down. Egypt, I brought you out of Egypt, that strong nation that was oppressing you. I brought you out, says God. God's saying to them, I'm the one who's responsible for the rise and fall of empires. I saved you. It wasn't your might or your power. It was because you were my people and I knew you. And so God says to them, verse 13, I'm about to crush you in your place as a wagon crushes when it's full of grain. So the irony here, there's a whole bunch of loaded statements in chapter 2 and 3. We haven't got time to go into all of them. But do you see the irony here? See, why is the wagon full of grain? Because they've been blessed. They've got a wagon full of grain because the harvest has been good for them. And yet God says that the, the very blessing that they've had is going to crush them. It's, it's going to turn back around on them because they haven't responded to God in their blessing. This is the very thing that God warned them about. Not to forget them when they went into the land and experienced peace and prosperity and all the blessings that God had for them. So you have a look at Deuteronomy chapter 8 with me. We'll pick it up from verse 11. Are we on the screen? This is Moses speaking to the people. Deuteronomy is basically one like long sermon or three shorter sermons. And it kind of is Moses speaking on behalf of God to the people before they enter the promised land. And here's what he says in verse, chapter 8 verse 11. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, ordinances, and statutes that I'm giving you today. When you eat in the full and build beautiful houses to live in, and your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold multiply, and everything else you have increases, be careful that your heart doesn't become proud, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. See the warning there? I wonder, are you and I today... A little bit like Israel. We've never had more. More stuff, more houses, more gadgets, more freedom, more holidays, more clothes. Whatever we want, we can get. And yet in the midst of it, we, just like Israel, are, are in danger of forgetting the one who is in control. Our wealth and the things that we have give us this illusion of control and security. See, what would your prayer life look like if you really thought that God was in control? If you were depending on him for each and every day, saying, God, give me today my daily bread. We don't need to pray that prayer because we think that we can get our daily bread on our own. We've forgotten some of God's control over our lives. What consumes your thoughts and desires? What is it for the you, the thing that fills your waking moments, that drives you forward, that lights you up when people ask you what you're passionate about? I wonder if some of us here say that we're captivated by Jesus, but yet during the week we're captivated by so many other things. 
by the future career that we're going to have, by the job that we're currently working in, by the focus on study, by relationships, by the holiday experiences that we're going to have all around us. There's so many other things that we're grabbed by, captivated by, that consume us. See, just 30 or so years after Amos wrote this prophecy, the nation of Assyria grew in power. They were up there kind of to the northeast of Israel, and they kind of came down and they wiped out Israel, completely gone. Assyria's policy for uh, invading nations was get all the people, take them all out of the land, mix them up with a bunch of other people they've conquered, and then put a random group back in so that no one knows each other and there can be no rebellions. Israel was completely wiped out just 30 years later. Who could have thought it? It was inconceivable. They thought they were invincible, and then they were just wiped out in 30 years. See, if they paid any attention to Amos and to God, it wouldn't have been a surprise to them. See what Amos says in verses 6 and 7. He has this whole series of statements which are describing the result and then the cause which sits behind the result. And, and, and the climax of it in verse 6, he says, If a disaster occurs in the city, hasn't the Lord done it? Indeed, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his counsel to his servants, the prophets. See, God in his kindness is warning Israel. He's telling them, come back to me. He sends prophets like Amos to bring the people back to him. See, we've called this series Return to God because at the heart of the message of the book of Amos is God calling his people to return, to come back to him. God's not fickle. He's not prone to angry outbursts. God doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed and just decide to judge a nation. He's not like you and me. We do that, but God's not like us. He is slow to anger, but he is just. And he will hold these people to account for the evil that they are doing. See, that's why he sends Amos, because he wants them to return to him. And he particularly wants them to return because he's got a special relationship with them. See chapter 3, verse 2. God says, I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. See, God's people had a special responsibility to come back to him because he knew them. He had walked with them. He had saved them out of Egypt. He had been their God and been faithful to them for such a long time. And so he says, come back to me. He'd spoken to them through the prophets. They knew his heart. The problem is that they don't listen. It was too crazy for them to picture a world in which their nation would be destroyed. They thought that they were invincible. As if God would judge us. Look at all our wealth and power. And even if he does, we've got the biggest army around. No one can stand against us. See, when you live in the middle of a prosperous time in history, you can't imagine it any other way. That's the way history works. We're, we're people of our history. We're people of the moment. But think 30 years ago, 1990. I, I doubt many of you were even alive in 1990. But the world was so different to what it is today. The internet was just coming in. There was kind of dial-up internet to get onto the modem in that sound. Da -da -da -da, like that kind of stuff. Um, there was no such thing as a smartphone, there was no laptops, 
The world was not interconnected the way it is today. There were nations that existed then that don't exist today. I think of nations like Tibet, of the kind of conquering and the, the wars that have happened in there with Hong Kong and there's different countries in Africa that have ex- existed now or don't exist that used to. Uh, off the coast of Libya, countries like that. Who could have predicted the collapse and rise of those nations? Who could have predicted the way that the world was going to go? Think the Soviet Union in the mid-1950s. Who could have predicted that just a, a few short years later they wouldn't exist? See, how invincible do we feel here in modern-day Auckland? We can't conceive of anything happening to us. We're, we live in this modern Western democracy, and, and, and it's, it's all because of what we have. One of my favorite book series is a series by, uh, I used to love it, I used to read them all, um, Tomorrow When the War Began by John Marsden. I don't know if anyone's read it. It's a series where a bunch of Aussie teenagers go into the bush for a holiday and they come back to find that Australia has been invaded. And, and, and it puts you in their shoes and you kind of, the main character, they're all teenagers and you're kind of following along with them as they make the decisions about, oh, should we fight and, and going into guerrilla warfare and what it looks like. But it really draws you in and makes you feel that it's real. See, it broke just for a moment as a teenager when I first read them, the invincibility that we feel in our modern day nation. How could you ever know what the world's going to look like in another 30 years? 30 years is a long time. What great superpowers of today might not exist? We don't know. We don't know the future. But the God who is in control of the nations and their rise and fall does. And so he says to Amos back then that I'm in control. And he's saying it to us today through these words. New Zealand prospers today not because of our um, foreign defense policy and the powerful allies that we have or our, our budget or our government or any other thing other than the control of God who is causing it to happen. Verse 8, a lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who will not prophesy? See, the roar of the lion is a warning, but it's a warning from the one who is in control and who loves. It's a a sound to come back, to turn and repent and, and to come back to God. It's a call to hear his words, to listen to him when he speaks. See, we find ourselves today in a more privileged position than even the Israelites did back then. That's the next point, our privileged position. See, God knew them. He spoke to them through the prophets, and so much of the Old Testament account is reminding Israel of the ways that God has acted for their good, showing them mercy and grace. But we today sit in a much more privileged position than Israel. See, look at what 1 Peter says about the position that we have. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstance the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to capture a glimpse of these things. See, Amos is a book about the sovereignty and control of God. 
about his justice and the salvation that's on offer. And the book actually ends in chapter 9 with one of the key pictures of God's heart and plan for the whole world, to bring a people to himself. (coughs) And Peter looks back at Amos's prophecy written over 2,500 years ago, and he looks back at it and says that those prophets, Amos, He was writing not for himself, not even primarily for his own audience, but for us today. The whole Old Testament was pointing forward to the gospel hope that is found only in Jesus. See, the angels longed to hear the plan of how God was going to save a people for himself, and yet they didn't know. They found out, along with us, as we heard about the good news of Jesus recorded in the gospels, that Jesus is the king, that with him he's died for us. And saved us by his blood. And so we sit here knowing that God has revealed himself in Jesus. He's entered into our broken world and rescued for himself a people that could not do it on their own. See, Israel in chapter 3 verse 10 are described as being incapable of doing right. And you and I, that's our experience too. Incapable of doing right, incapable of meeting the God of the universe's holy standard. But yet he doesn't wipe us out. He offers hope and eternal life and rescue if we will repent and put our trust in Jesus. We sit in the most privileged position in all of the world's history today. We have access to the God who has spoken. It's a privilege of, of great power and, and, and great uh, opportunity that we have. And as Uncle Ben famously said to his nephew, Peter Parker, with great power comes great responsibility. It means that we need to hear this warning in a unique way today. That's the final point. This is the warning that we need to hear. See, as, as we read this passage and we hear this warning of incoming judgment on Israel, we need to read it in light of the rescue that we have on offer in Jesus. It's a warning that we need to take seriously. See, for some of us here, we've never taken Jesus seriously before. Sure, we come along to church every now and then, but really Christianity for us is just a Sunday thing. Just someone I rock up and I attend on a Sunday, and that's what being a Christian looks like. Is that you here today? Is that your experience of Christianity is just kind of coming along once every second or third or fourth week, just turning up? This passage shows us that God's warning is not to be taken lightly. See, all of us are in need of rescue. All of us are incapable of doing good. And you can't just kind of rock up every now and then to church and think that's going to cut it. You need to turn and trust the one who offers you salvation, Jesus. God has spoken through his son. And his patience is not eternal. He, doesn't, he, he, he will judge. He will call people to account for how they've acted. See, don't live as if God doesn't exist midweek and then just rock up on Sunday. This is the God, remember, who raises and destroys nations, the one who's in control over all things. Jesus offers salvation and we need to take him up on that offer and repent and believe and and we'll find true life in him. For others of us here today, we need to be reminded that the clear message of Amos 2 and 3 is that God doesn't play favorites. 
Just because he's blessed us in Jesus, just because we have the offer of life and salvation and hope for the future, it doesn't mean we can just do what we want. It doesn't mean we can just presume of his grace and live however we were going to live beforehand and, and, and just say, oh, God's got me covered. Take for granted his mercy and his forgiveness. See, the message of Amos and is a message that we need to hear today is that God's people will listen to his voice. Come to Hebrews chapter 3. See how the author of Hebrews puts it. Hebrews 3 verse 12. It says, Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95, which reflects back on an account when Israel were coming out of the Exodus and applies it to Christians today. Today, as you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The Spirit is speaking through the word of God to you right now as you hear it opened. And the point is that if you've become participants in Christ, that is, if his death is for you, if his resurrection is your resurrection, if your life is so wrapped up with him that your salvation is found through the blood of Jesus, that you've got new life with him, if that's true for you, then you're to hold firm to that reality, to the end which you had at the start. New life in Jesus. See, God's people are to encourage each other so that we're not hardened by sin, so that we're not hardened to turn away from the living God. We need to hear the warning tonight that God doesn't tolerate a people who profess to be worshipping in his name and don't care at all to hear from him. God won't tolerate a people that say that they're Christians and that they're saved, but don't want to listen to the one who has saved them, that don't care at all about fighting sin, whose lives are full of injustice on a, on a personal front and in other ways as well, that don't care how they live or who they oppress or who they mistreat. God's grace doesn't give us a free pass to do whatever we want, to have a fast and loose attitude towards sex, to accept other religious views as, as valid and, and, and equal alongside the worship of the one true God. See, to be a disciple of Jesus, it starts by accepting this offer of salvation, but it doesn't just stop there. It, it's, it starts with repenting and believing, but it continues with a life of listening to the voice of the living God. For some of us, we're captivated and, and grabbed and living for the wrong things. We, we come and hear from God's voice on Sunday and it seems so clear and loud to us, but it doesn't seem so clear and loud on a Friday night when we're out partying. It doesn't seem so clear and loud when I get into that fight with that person at work or, or gossip about that person at uni behind their back. It doesn't seem so clear at those moments. See, discipleship to Jesus is not just about head knowledge. It's not just about learning things about God. It's, a, it's a, about a knowledge that shapes your heart. Where after transformation as Christians, to hear from God means hearing from him and being transformed by his word. 
It's an all-of-life reality that shapes every facet of who we are. That's what being a disciple is. It's the language of apprenticeship, of, of sitting under the teaching and learning from one and shaping your life around them. See, Israel, they said that, yes, we worship you, God, we're religious, but their actions showed them differently. What do we see? That Israel profane the name of God by the way that they act. God doesn't play favorites. He won't tolerate that continued kind of disobedience that brings shame to his name and and, and takes away from him the glory that he deserves. He won't tolerate that we profess to know him and yet won't listen to him at all. See, God has saved us through the work of Jesus. It's not anything that we've done. It's his free gift of grace. It's his mercy. But he's given us the task of living to make much of his name. That's what we want to be on about here at Uni Church. It's my heart for us. I run the maturity purpose here at church. And my heart for us is that we would be disciples of Jesus that live for his fame. Live for his glory, not our own. That bear his name faithfully, not profaning it and and bringing him shame. See, we proclaim the good news of Jesus as king as as we preach the gospel. But we do it not just with our words, but with our actions as we listen to the voice of the true and living God. Let's pray that we might be this kind of a community that spurs each other on to live for God and listen to his voice. Father God, we're so thankful for your word here tonight. We pray that you might work in and through your word to bring about powerful transformation in our lives. We pray that where we need to go and do the work of self-assessment, where your spirit is pressing onto our consciences, areas where we haven't been listening to you, that you would help us to make real change tonight that we would live in response to the grace that you have shown us by hearing your voice and responding to your call. Father, help us to be a community that encourages and spurs each other on and pushes each other towards that goal of making much of the name of Jesus, of living for his glory, his fame, and his honor. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful, and if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.